Today, we have a long passage to read. We are reading from Genesis 19, verses 1 through 38. Genesis 19, the full chapter. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And he said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of, this, to bring them out of this, the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, 
Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Alice. Well, and you thought your family was messy. Well, you know what? That's one of the things we're going to see in this story today. That there is grace for messy families. And that's all of us. We all have messiness in our families. There is grace for messy families. You maybe saw our uh, parental warning on our email this week, letting you know that we are covering some obviously intense and explicit material today. Uh, So Sunday School is available if you want to get out there real quick. Uh, But I think we're good, so let's get going. I remember a conversation with a friend of mine at my last church about the heroes of the Old Testament. And he said as we were going through the Old Testament in our church, some of the books, he found himself shocked that these were the people God chose to work with. They aren't very heroic, are they? I mean, yes, of course, there are many times when they show, a, a exhibit great courage and faith and trust, but many occasions their lives are riddled with great acts of evil. 
Lapses in judgment, bad decisions. We, you heard a bunch of them in our story today. Their lives are a mixture of good and bad and real faith struggles. Even Abraham has them. And he found himself, my friend, angry at the Old Testament saints. But he came to the realization over time, well, number one, that he was much like them in many ways, but also that the purpose, number two, of these lives was to show actually the grace and goodness of God against the backdrop of these dark and sinful lives. You're right, I said, they aren't very heroic because God is the hero of the Bible. Well, today's one of those stories you already heard it read, and if it wasn't for 2 Peter, we would leave this story today not understanding that Lot is actually what we would call a believer. Look at 2 Peter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, righteous? Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust, defiling passion, despise authority. He says righteous three times there, as if he knows we're thinking, Lot? Lot's righteous? Lot's a believer? Yes, righteous Lot, righteous soul, righteous man, he says there. Clearly it's possible for a follower of God, for a believer to be conflicted. On the one hand, grieved by the sin of the world or of his or her heart, and hold on to and clutch to those very things of the world at the same time. Lot lacked character. Lot lacked commitment. Hanging on for dear life to temptation and enticement all the time at the same time while grieving in heart the sin of those same enticements. We want both. Aren't you like that at times? You want to have it all? We hold on to some idols so tightly that it's as if you'd have to rip them from our dead claws like Lot. But don't you want to change? Don't you want to not be like that? Well, Lot, even with the coming judgment upon the wicked that was revealed to that family, Lot and his family must be dragged to grace and safety because of these attachments to their earthly life. But what they find is that on the other side of that rescue, the infection still remains. The infection of Sodom is still in their heart, and they need an even greater rescuing. So let's look this morning. We're going to look at uh, four chapters of this epic story. So hopefully you've got your outline there, your text open, and let's see who the true hero of this story actually is. And that it's not Lot. You know who it is, right? Christ. <laughs> we do that every week, don't we? I hope you know that. I hope that's something you know. Let's look at our first chapter. God warns this family even as he judges. God warns even as, before even he judges. So our story picks up last week where we left off last week. Remember, Abraham was graciously interceding for Sodom as David did such a great job of packing that passage for us. And, and he's interceding where his nephew Lot and his family began to live in this city. And he, he pleaded with God, do you remember? To spare the city even if he found ten righteous people there. Judgment was going to come to this city for its wickedness. 
And here now come these two angels. Look at chapter 19, verse 13 with me. We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become very great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Yahweh sent us to destroy this place. It's, it's imminent. It's going to happen. I don't know, as we've read this story, maybe you've caught in there, there's so much overlap with Noah. If you caught that, even down to the getting drunk after the judgment, actually. There's so much overlap with Noah. Noah, like, or excuse me, Lot, like Noah, was righteous. He was the man in the city who was righteous. One of the few. Like Noah, Lot's given a warning about the coming destruction. But there's also a lot of overlap here between Lot receiving the angel guests and Abraham, Abraham receiving him at, at his house just a bit earlier. So let's look. We're going to go from hospitality again here to an absolute spectacle of horror. That's the best way I could think to describe it this week. It's a spectacle of horror. We find Lot at the beginning of this story. He's sitting at the gate, which means in the Bible that he's a very important person in Sodom. If anybody's sitting at the gate, it means they were part of all the daily happenings and goings and, and, and judgments and decisions being made in the city. So here, what did he do? He went, do you remember in Genesis, Lot went from pitching his tent by the city, even though he knew it was wicked, to living in the city, to now being one of the elite of the city, sitting at the gate. And as these two men come, he understands that they're important, much like Abraham did, and he offers them great hospitality, like Abraham did too. Come, eat my food, stay at my house, night is approaching. And he says, you know, come stay at my house so you can uh, get up early and, and get out of here. It's almost like he knows too, something's up here. Come eat, we'll send you on your way. That's not what this is going to look like, is it? We've got to get these guys out of here. But they want to sleep in the square, but Lot knows better, and he knows they're at cities and places uh, that we know too. Sometimes there's places you just don't want to be after dark, isn't there? You just know, I shouldn't be here right now. I don't feel very safe. Maybe you've had one of those experiences. Lot wanted these two men to avoid that experience. And this is where things take a turn to a spectacle of horror. Lot, basically, he's able to, uh, basically the word says manhandle is kind of what he did. He wrestles them to his home, which is ironic because in a short time they're going to be wrestling him from his home. But he gets them there. He presses them, the text says, and, and they relent. But as they're eating, as they're feasting, they hear a noise. What is that? A, a, a ruckus. A rumble kind of begins to come through the walls of, of, of Lot's house. A growing buzz outside the door and windows begins to grow. All the men of the city. All of them. Moses makes it really clear in the text. All the men of the city, down to the very last one, come to assault these two men. And that would probably include, then, if it's all the men, Lot's two future son-in-laws that are mentioned in a couple verses. They came too. Canaanites were known, which is who these people were. 
Canaanites were known for their sexual evil and, and strange aberrations of sex that were tied to idol worship. And here what we have is the practice of, of homosexual rape is being portrayed, to put it as clear as possible. They weren't planning on a handshake, I can tell you that, as they came to the house. And at first, Lot does act heroic here, doesn't he? He steps outside the door to protect these, these men, these angels that appear as men, and he tries to intercede for them. He, he takes a role somewhat like Abraham. He intercedes in this moment. Don't do this great act of evil. He's holding at bay this mass of men approaching and pressing in on his house now. Don't do this great evil. But any hint of heroics is soon quickly betrayed by a horrific hypocrisy, isn't it? He offers up, you heard it right, he offers up his two virgin daughters to the gathered crowd. Look at verses 8 and 9. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my, the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, and Lot drew, uh, the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Now, it's possible here with Lot that he's just biding his time. Maybe he never intended to really do it. It's possible that he knows they'll object because even in their Canaanite culture, it was considered a great evil to take a woman who was already betrothed to somebody. It was as as similar as, as actually committing adultery. That's possible. But either way, it's a horrific act of cowardice. The Sodom, you can tell now, has slipped in to his very own soul. Have my daughters. He places hospitality to strangers above his own family. Here is a worn down, conflicted, compromised, hypocritical man. And at the same time, the the words from Peter, he's tortured by the sin of his city. And now he's contributing to it with the offer of his daughters. Here Lot stands. Think of him now there. He's at the doorframe. He stands between two worlds. On the one hand, he's tortured by this evil He's called a foreigner, a stranger, an alien now. He's called judgmental by the crowd. But behind him is another world that he's willing to sell, to traffic, really, his own flesh and blood, daughters, to hold on to something. What was he trying to hold on to? What a tragic story. This is a righteous man. There's some struggle here for us to relate to. Loving God's goodness and righteousness on the one hand, but willing to do so much to hold on to stuff, uh, positions, accomplishments, power, something. Lot's trying to hold on to something here. 
And it's a devil's bargain. It's a devil's bargain here for Lot. The irony here is they're just about to break through his door. The ones he was protecting, the one who was doing the protecting, now he needs the protection. And he's pulled back in, and the angels blind the man with, men with some miraculous act. And did you catch it? They're so intent on evil. I think if I was blind in that moment, I would have probably crawled home. No. They continue to grope at the door to try to find it, to, to consummate their evil act. They're not giving up. And this moment of horror turns into a, a moment of warning. Let's talk about get up and go. Get up and go. I mean, at this point in the story, I mean, it's surprising that, you know, it's surprising the angels don't just get up and leave. They're righteous angels. They are holy. They're from, sent from God. You know, Lot, you don't deserve us. You don't deserve this warning. Good luck, buddy after they just watched him. But no, God's grace, in God's grace, they reveal to him, get up and go, get out of here. Warn your family. Do you have anybody here? We're about to destroy this place. And his son-in-law, his son's-in-law, when he tells him, they laugh at him as he goes out to warn them. They feel more secure with the material world and the stuff they have in the city rather than the coming judgment of God. And we think, I mean, they're crazy, you think. They're crazy. But the irony of the story here, and this story just drips with irony, the irony is that Lot and his daughters and his wife and us sometimes do the very same thing. It's the second chapter. We are tempted to clutch the world even in the face of grace. We're tempted to grasp and hold on to the things of the world even in the face of grace. Think of the reality here. Lot, his daughter, his daughters, his wife, and their guests have had a massive gang of men come to seek to rape them. They're given now warning by these angels as they saw this miraculous event. Hey, look, this place is going up in smoke. And what do they do? They clutch their world. They clutch their home. They clutch their stuff. Look at verse 15 of 19. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, go, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. They linger? Are you kidding? After what just happened? You get to this place in the story, and it, Moses records for us, but they kind of hung around a while. <laughs> they, they, they lingered. It, it's like the last ship is getting, getting ready to be taken down from the Titanic. And there's room on the ship, and they say, hey, we've got two more seats. Get on. And you respond, can I think about it? <laughs> that's, what, that's what this is like. Can I think about it? I know he's a folk hero here in this region, and I mean no disrespect by sharing his story, 
But Harry Randall Truman was urged by geologists and authorities to leave Mount St. Helens in 1980. You probably heard his story. He owned a, a kind of a, a lodge or something up there. He was warned. Look, it's coming. Leave to save your life. Get up and go. And here was his response. I'm going to stay right here because I tell you why. My home and my blank life's here. My wife and I, we both vowed years and years ago we'd never leave Spirit Lake. We loved it. It's part of me. I'm part of that blank, fill it in, mountain. Now, of course, the stories aren't exactly the same. But to love something temporal on this earth so much that you'd enter into eternity for it, not heed a warning of death, when either way you're going to lose the thing you're clutching, it seems absurd, but you know what it shows us? Home is truly where the heart is. Home is truly where your heart is. Here's the point. You can't have both. You can't have both Sodom and deliverance. They linger. See, Sodom's already entered Lot's heart. He didn't leave his heart in San Francisco. You know the song, he was leaving it in Sodom. His heart was firmly grounded there. And even in the face of death, they didn't want to give it up. You can't hold on to your sin and seek salvation. You can't try to look just like the world and like your Savior at the same time. Where your heart is, is where you will show your true allegiances to be. They linger. There's a lot of wrestling right now. We talked about it a couple weeks ago even. There's a lot of wrestling right now with our place as Christians in what you might call a post-Christian America. Where's our true home? Where's our true home? And this story and God's Word itself affirms our true home is not here. It's just not. We can't fully assimilate. You can't, you, it's true you can love two places, sure. You can love two places, but you can't ultimately have both. You can't love each as supreme. You just can't. One or the other will take precedence. One home has to take precedence. And here Lot lingers. Like Lot, we're now sitting, I think you could say, in a Sodom of sorts, probably not as bad as what they experienced, but we thought it was our home. And now it isn't, and maybe we're seeing that more and more clearly every day, aren't we? I hope you're seeing that. I hope you're feeling that uneasiness, that tension. The danger for us, though, is the same danger for Lot, though, is that we may hold on to it and clutch it so tight that we will linger. When the true kingdom and its graces, like it was for Lot, are staring us right in the face. And that becomes idolatrous when we hold on and clutch something like that. I read a great line this week. Don't even play footsie with idolatry. Just don't. For us, we've been talking about these last couple weeks, this idea of politics. I know we're all exhausted on it. 
because it's been everything in the news, but what we're calling ourselves to, I think, really in the church is is a way to kind of dethrone the tension in politics, the tension we get in both kingdoms when we focus so much on politics. Here's a quote I had that I want us to read this week. In a world of political and partisan idolatry, the church is to dethrone politics. What's that mean? This does not mean that we should embrace political passivity or that we should no longer engage in the political process. It doesn't mean that. It just simply means that our fundamental allegiance must be to another king whose principles and promises transcend the debate of, current, of the current moment so we're able to invest in the cultural work over the long haul and not fall prey to the tyranny of whatever seems urgent in one particular moment. He goes on to say, maintaining some distance, disciplining ourselves to not weigh in on every controversy, taking time to ponder and think about wider cultural movements, these are indispensable attributes in showing the world that as a church, we have a transcendent reference point. That's Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's what we need. It mean be politically passive. It just means hold Sodom in its proper context. Put it in its proper place in your life. I pray that this rattling of the church's foundation serves us a purpose to awaken again and remind us that this world, its systems, its rulers, its leaders were never our true home to begin with anyways. So what do we need? It's grace that saves us in lingering and in fear. We need grace. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. But he lingered, so the men seized him. They grabbed him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape your life. Do not look back. Stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The Lord's mercy, the text says, is that they have to be wrestled out of their city. Like he wrestled the men into his home, they have to be wrestled out of the city, dragged by the hand, dragged out. This is what grace and mercy does. It drags us out of the muck and mire. And we would rather assume play in our mud pits of Sodom, as C.S. Lewis said, rather when a holiday at the sea is available to us. Remember that quote of his? We'd rather play in mud pits when we've got a holiday that's stretched out in front of us. Come and take. I'm good here, holding on. And Lot surely didn't deserve deliverance, did he? No. He's just tried to pimp out his daughters, to put it really crassly. That's what he did. Don't you see, the only reason you and I believe, the only reason you've trusted the Holy Spirit is that he's taken you by the hand and transferred you to another kingdom. He's done a work on your heart. Nobody naturally loves the light, the light of the new kingdom. Nobody naturally chases after the kingdom of God. You've been given a heart that longs for a new home. It's a gift you've been given. We're naturally much more at home in Sodom, to be honest. 
We're naturally much more home at Sodom, and we actually will hold on to it and clutch to it, much like Lot. You have to be transferred out, born again, by the work of the Spirit, transferred out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Because our hearts are prone to allegiances of other countries, other homes, until, as Colossians says, He's delivered us, transferred us from the domain of darkness and and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. But even as He's dragged out of the city lot and given the warning, don't look back or stop at all, go to the hills. You know what He does here? Do you see it? He's also afraid. He tries to make another bargain with them. He asks for a smaller Sodom. Zoar, another city. Even as he acknowledges God's grace, did you see the words, I have found favor, I have found great kindness in you angels and in God and in his salvation, but he still doesn't fully trust that God could protect him in the hills too. So what does he do? Please, send, send, okay, Sodom, maybe it's gone, but please send me to another little city, another little city, not the hills. And how gracious. God gives him even that. He gives him what he asks for and he spares this city Zoar. And even he even says to him, we won't even touch Sodom until you're safe there with your daughters. So even though he's weak, even though he's conflicted, even though he's hypocritical, even though he's lingering, even though he's fearful, God extends him grace to this chosen man his wife, and his daughters. He extends to him grace. We know sovereign divine grace is the grounds of deliverance. Not human righteousness, because was Lot righteous? By faith, yes. By works, no. Let's look more deeply at judgment and deliverance in our third chapter as we wrap up these last two quicker than the first two. God delivers and preserves his people, so don't look back. Don't look back. The judgment comes in just, you know, it's such a buildup, isn't it? Such a buildup. And then it comes in just a couple short verses. It's very clear it's something the Lord has done. Moses wants to be clear. Yahweh has done this. It was at his direction. It was his doing. Fire has rained from heaven somehow, whether God used the natural means of a volcano or supernaturally brought this from the sky. The point is, devastation was total, and God caused it. Except for three people. Three people had just escaped. Not ten, three. And as Abraham watched from the hills that early morning, what must that have been like? A lot of you were here in the 80, weren't you? 1980. You could see from far away the effects from Washington Mount St. Helens, you saw it. It was uh, incredibly astounding, probably shocking. You will never forget it. You know where you were when it happened, right? Imagine Abraham that morning as the sun rises. The smoke is rising too and the charred ground and the rubble of the cities that he knew. One of them he even saved, King Sodom, uh, stories back. I wonder if he knew they had gotten out. Or I wonder if he was uh, full of faith and assurance. I'm sure God got them out of there. He would keep his covenant promise, wouldn't he? Look down at 29. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered. God remembered his promises, his covenant, and he was sure to deliver righteous Lot. Remember, Abraham had interceded, hadn't he? Oh, please, save Lot, spare that city, even if there's ten. Well, there wasn't ten, was there? But he spared the person, if not the place, didn't he? Deliverance through intercession. This even points to our final deliverance. When we are delivered, when we are preserved, when we are pulled out of the city when judgment comes upon this earth. It's not a popular topic. But it's true. Powerfully said by this commentator, he said, in the fearful catastrophe of the last day, that's our last day now, when a favored countless multitude shall be seen emerging and soaring to the mountains of salvation from the midst of a still more countless multitude left to their fate in the flames of a burning world. Their deliverance, our deliverance, your deliverance shall be owing to the efficacy of His prevalent intercession and atoning blood. That's Jesus. That's our only escape. This judgment on Sodom points to the final judgment and Lot's deliverance points to our deliverance. Abraham interceded for Lot, but ultimately we need a greater intercession, don't we? You do. Let's look at this final chapter, our final chapter. You can take the family out of Sodom, but you can't take the Sodom out of the family. Even after the saving, every family member shows some horrific behavior. This great divine grace comes, and they still, before we look at the final episode of Lot and his daughters, you're probably thinking, well, we can't forget Lot's wife, right? You probably heard this story. You, you, we can't forget Lot's wife. As the destruction is taking place, she looks back when the angels say, don't look back. Now, popular culture would have you believe that this was a, a fleeing woman, and she couldn't help, but as she's sprinting, and the flames are at her heels. She just can't help to take a peek over her shoulder as she felt the heat on her back. That's what popular culture would have you believe happened here. Well, we know that's not the case because the angels even say, we won't destroy Sodom lot until your daughters and you are safe in Zoar. So what happened? This was much more than a momentary pause, a quick lapse of judgment, or the inability to look away from a train wreck. She lingered even longer. It basically means she wouldn't leave. Jesus gives us a clue, Luke 17. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. She lost her life because of her reluctance to let go of something in that city. She couldn't leave her heart in Sodom, so she just decided, well, I'll just stay. And at that point, it was too late. And there was no angel to whisk her away. 
He had taken her out of Sodom, but Sodom was so deeply rooted in her heart that she wouldn't go. More than likely what happened is the sulfurous gases as she was closer to the city probably than them overpowered her and her corpse was encased much like the ones you've seen from Pompeii. In fact, interesting side fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he even claims actually to have seen the pillar of salt, her encased body, outside the biblical uh, reference. Something drew her back though. What is it for you? Something drew her back. What is it that keeps you trying to straddle both worlds? What form of Sodom remains in your heart? Another way to put it. The family was taken out, but the problem was bigger than their zip code, wasn't it? The stain still remained in their hearts. Look at our final section. Let's look at it. What in the world do we do with this? <laughs> How do we close with this today? It's horrific. It's, it's incest. It is incest. It is what it says it is. It, the Bible is not boring, is it? <laughs> Think about this. Lot is a widower now, and his two daughters, they flee the city, to this city, they flee Sodom. God's given him Zoar, but he's afraid to go there too, so he ends up actually going to the hills. What a sad picture. His city is gone. He's living now in a cave, like a tomb, basically, huddling in fear with his two daughters after this massive destruction. And his daughters think, well, all the men are probably dead. Humanity will be extinct. What are we going to do? Now, this was not for pleasure. We want to be clear here. His daughters were not seeking pleasure with their father. They were seeking longevity, a family, safety. So, the one who, uh, so here's the thing. The one who offered his daughters as sexual trade-off is now having sex with his daughters. He carries out the act that he suggested the Sodom, Sodomites do. Not only once, he does it twice on two separate days even. Not just once. This is not good. This is tragic for a, a follower of God. Of course, Sodom has entered into their hearts, and I think, I think Sodom would have ultimately destroyed Lot, lest the Lord destroyed it. Because you can see how clearly the stain remains in him. But their problem was much deeper, as I said, than a zip code. Like mine. Like yours. Way deeper. We've been given so much grace, shown so much truth, and yet we hold on to things, don't we? Clutch our idols for dear life. Idols of power, idols of material wealth, idols of pleasure-seeking. We want both Sodom and salvation, just like them. It's a heart level. Sodom has infused your soul. It's such a big problem that we need that other intercessor, Christ Let's look at him to finish. Christ defeats the Sodom of our hearts by becoming Sodom for us. Do you see the Christ connection today? You and I all deserve judgment. A loving God can't excuse sin. 
Would that be love if he just turned a blind eye to all the heinous, horrific things done in the world? That's not love. We don't do that with our children. Why would God do it with humanity? He has to judge sin. And by judging, somebody always has to absorb the cost. You do it with your kids. They scream out, I hate you. You don't respond the way you wish you could or want to in that moment. You absorb it. And so Christ takes the ultimate judgment, the true fire and brimstone. Christ had all the wrath of heaven poured out on him, on him, so that we could be freed. He becomes a wretched Sodom, so that we could be freed from the Sodom of our hearts. He willingly stayed behind. He lingered really far behind, didn't he? He stayed behind, not because he needed more possessions, but because he, not because he needed recognition, but because he loved us. He loved you. And he would fight our battle to absorb the cost. But you know you too have pieces of Sodom that remain. But the more you rest in this love, the more you rest in this love, the more you experience this love in relationship with him, with Jesus Christ, guess what? You will be willing to give up anything to gain him. If he asks. Your obsession to stuff, addiction to toys, your angers even in your life, your maybe political influence. If he asks you, You can take the family out of Sodom, right? Only Christ can take the Sodom out of the family. It means there's grace and mercy for messy families. So, don't look back. Look to Christ. Pray with me. Jesus, what a heavy story. What a tragic story. And yet you show this family mercy. Not once, not twice, but many times. And even at the cross, Jesus died for Lot's incest. Jesus died for Lot offering up his daughters. Jesus died for the daughter's incest. Jesus died for our sins too. May we look to him.